I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Welcome to another episode of Anxiety Bites. I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Today, my guest is Sarah Fay. She has a new memoir out called Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses. So today's episode, kind of a thinker, or maybe it's not. Maybe it was just something for me to wrap my brain around at first. I read Sarah's book. I loved it. And, you know, at first, if you just said to me on paper, you know, hey, there's a book out and this person says that the DSM, which is how all um, mental health diagnoses, they come from the DSM and it stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And I've known of the DSM my, my whole adult life that I've been in therapy. It's what therapists use to diagnose you. So you may say, I have this symptom, I have that. They may look it up in their little book, the DSM, and say, oh, well, that's a clinical depression or that's a generalized anxiety disorder. A lot of times a talk therapist will use it because there are codes in the book. So they'll say, okay, so you're coming in to uh, talk about your family. Now, would you say that that's 
causing you more depression, anxiety, you know, and then they'll put the code for your diagnosis on some kind of super bill and it gets sent to insurance. And if your insurance covers you to see a therapist for anxiety and depression, then there you go. You're going to be covered. So it originally came about as a way for doctors to communicate with each other. And then it sort of became the the manual for how to diagnose people. And I've heard comments here and there from professionals that like the DSM, you know, it's just, it's not the dictionary, if that makes sense. It's not totally accurate. It's not set in stone. It's, it's, it's guesswork. And there are a lot of diagnoses that could fit you. You could have a bunch of symptoms from different things. It doesn't mean you have that disorder per se. And then it doesn't mean if you are diagnosed with one that that your doctor's right necessarily. And it doesn't mean that you're going to have it your whole life. So in a way, getting a diagnosis can be helpful because you don't just feel like I'm just, I guess, crazy, you know, and no help for me. I mean, having a name for something I think is so helpful. You, You go, well, there's a name for this, then other people must have experienced it. And there's experts out there who can help me. But then as you get a little more practiced or grown up or further along in your recovery from whatever mental disorder you're going through, you might start to think, well, this seems like a very narrow definition. I don't know, do I really have this or is it more this or is it, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And so that's why I sometimes get nervous thinking, about doing episodes like this, when I when I decided to do this episode, I thought, I hope I do this right, because I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist or make Sarah sound like one. Because nobody is saying, oh, mental health issues, they're not real. That's literally not what anyone is saying. But I know if you're doing the dishes or driving and sort of half listening to this, who knows what you might hear. But I just want to make sure on my end that I've been very clear that what we're talking about in this episode, there is this manual called the DSM. And while mental health illnesses are real, the way that many things uh, in the book are diagnosed may be sometimes inaccurate. You may get an inaccurate diagnosis. It doesn't mean that like, all oh, doctors are bullshit. That's not what I'm saying. And Sarah and I very much believe in mental illness. We've both had it. we very much believe in psychiatry. We both go to psychiatrists, but we're just saying this book has its flaws and she just wants to bring that out into the open. I mean, there are bigger issues at play. I mean, sometimes people use the DSM to market their antidepressants, you know, and sometimes the DSM may be used by well-meaning people who may accidentally overdiagnose someone. So it's just kind of shining a light on this thing that that if you're in therapy, you may have heard referenced, oh, the DSM. And if you're anything like me, sometimes you hear something and you might not know a lot about something. And so you, you figure, oh, they know what they're talking about. The DSM sounds pretty, uh, you know, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders sounds pretty uh, on the up and up to me. And we're not saying it's, uh, you know, some dark shadowy group. It's like, it's just not 100% accurate. And so I talked to Sarah today about her new book, which, by the way, again, is called Pathological. It is out right now. You can get it wherever you get books. It's been called A Powerful Memoir, A Deeply Compelling Person, and A Fantastic Writer. Pathological will make you passionate about improving the way we handle mental health. And again, you can get it 
wherever you get books. A little bit about Sarah Fay, the author. She is an author and an activist. Her writing appears in many publications, including The New York Times, The Atlantic, Time Magazine, The New Republic, McSweeney's The Believer, and The Paris Review, where she has served as an advisory editor. She's currently on the faculty at Northwestern University and DePaul University. She's the founder of Pathological the Movement, a public awareness campaign devoted to making people aware that mental health diagnoses are invalid and largely unreliable, and a full recovery from mental illness is possible. So I will link to Sarah's website and her book in the show notes. And I hope you enjoy our very nuanced and rather heady conversation about this thing called the DSM. Before I ask you the six diagnoses you've had in your lifetime, let's define pathological or let you define it. I'll listen. <laughs> so we were worried about that, my editor and I, actually, just because it's not that common of a word. It's used in psychiatry circles a lot, but not and in medical circles. But it's essentially medicalizing a condition, any condition. It doesn't have to be psychiatric. It could be anything. So when we pathologize, the human condition is what psychiatry is often accused of. We're talking about mm. calling the emotion anxiety, the disorder anxiety. And it's confusing because they're the same name, same with depression. So we're calling the disorder depression the same as the emotion of depression. And so what are the six diagnoses that you've had in your life um, as you write in your book, Pathological, that you said you have received since you were 12 years old or beginning at the age of 12? Yeah. So I was first diagnosed with anorexia and then it progressed. I had a little break um, in terms of diagnoses. So I was basically was out of danger in terms of anorexia and no longer going to the hospital by the time I was about 16. But then I had kind of that lag in college that a lot of women have, which is you're, you're eating horribly, but enough <laughs> that you're gaining weight anyway. So, you know, so I had that. And then, um, and then in my 20s, I was in a relationship that was just really positive. And I did really well there for a while. And I talk about this in my book. He's now a chef and was a fantastic cook. And he really taught me to love food. Um, a lot of people who read my book say the second chapter is a relief because the first chapter is so, you know, dramatic with my anorexia. And then the second chapter is all about this boyfriend, Chris, and how great our life was together. It didn't last. And yeah. so I then went into sort of a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, de definitely dipping into hypochondria, relying on alcohol to self-medicate. And I talk about that in the book. But finally, when I moved to New York, it really started to uh, reach more of an acute phase. And so I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder by my primary care physician in New York and given Valium, which I quickly became, I wouldn't say addicted, but I was definitely relying on it. Um, mm. And then when I was in New York as well, my cat passed away. My cat died cat people out there will be able to relate to this, but I was devastated. Mm -hmm. She'd been mine for 16 years. And so I really went into a very deep depression and had been battling with depression anyway, but turned to exercise um, to try to relieve it. And I was running so much in New York and running over what we called the five bridges. So we would do all the bridges in, you know, in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens and 
so anyway, so I was running to such a degree and I went to a therapist, um, a friend insisted that I go and I received the diagnosis of major depressive disorder after the 30 minute consult. And uh, she said I should be on antidepressants right away. I resisted. I was the kind of person who wouldn't take aspirin. I mean, I was just like, no, 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 yeah. no, no. I, I'm natural. And so I yoga'd and I meditated and I <laughs> Chinese herbed and I just kept getting worse and I kept getting worse. And so eventually I went to get my PhD in Iowa and I ended up going to my primary care physician there. He diagnosed me first with ADHD, then obsessive compulsive disorder, and then obsessive compulsive disorder and ADHD with uh, anxiety and depressive elements, which sounds like a like nice cocktail or something. <laughs> I don't even know what yeah. that is. <laughs> and it got it got quite bad at that point. And then I started to become suicidal and was really just uh, went into crisis phase for about, I guess it would be nine years. And then I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And so that's where my final diagnosis ended up. And I mean, it's a much longer story. Obviously, it's a book, but right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, of but, course. Yeah. Uh, finally, I was extremely suicidal. I had been put on and taken off so many medications. Um, antipsychotics had terrible adverse reactions, including akathisia, which is this terrible side effect where you feel like you're crawling out of your skin. You can't stop Oof. moving. It's It was awful. And so I had a falling out with my psychiatrist at the time, and I went to a new psychiatrist that my sister found. My sister and my mother, my whole family, they're the heroes of this book, no question. I was so lucky to mm -hmm. have them. And I went to this new psychiatrist, and he, uh, we had our quick you know, back and forth, 27 minutes, and I waited for him to proclaim whatever he thought my diagnosis was or give me a new diagnosis. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And my mm. whole world changed. And I was walking down Chicago Avenue in Chicago and it was winter. It was brittly cold. And I just thought, no one knows what I have. None of you do. And so then I took it on <laughs> myself and I just said, I'm going to find out everything about mental health diagnoses, their history, who thought of these, where did they come from? What lab were they discovered in? And so I just wanted to know everything. So I ended up going into this deep research phase. And that's what my book is. It's my story, but I also bring in all the information that I want other people to know to save them from going through what I went through. So I have two quick follow-up questions. One is, was it because you had been diagnosed so many times, was it weirdly freeing to have someone say, I don't know what's wrong with you? And secondly, I normally I would do this like kind of at the end of the episode, but tell us now how you would diagnose yourself? Like, what do you have now and how do you handle it? No, I'm glad we're talking about it now because I always want to preface that even though, and we'll talk more about this, but the diagnoses we receive, all the mental health diagnoses. And when we talk about the DSM, that's just the manual they come from. It's just a book. And that's where everything we're given, you know, originates. We talk about those are, um, invented categories. And I didn't say that actually, but uh, Thomas Insel, who the former head of the NIMH, which is the National Institute of Mental Health, he said that. Mm. So a lot of the, sort of our most prominent psychiatrists and researchers have been warning us about the invalidity of these diagnoses. So even though I say that, and I agree with them, not that they need me to agree with them, but um, <laughs> that mental illness is very, very real. I had one. There's no question. 
I used to say I have or had one, um, but they are no DSM diagnosis, no mental health diagnosis has been proven to be chronic. Mental illness is not chronic. Um, and that mm-hmm. same Thomas Insull, who's someone I really, really admire, um, he just came out with a book that basically says um, it's kind of an apology for focusing so much on the biomedical model or this idea that our mental health diagnoses are biological and therefore chronic um, when he was Mm. during his time at the NIMH. And instead of really providing for people and providing care for those, especially most in need with serious mental illness. um, But he's now come out and said, no mental illness is chronic. We can fully recover. And so I see myself as an example of someone who had a serious mental illness. Um, I had two, three technically, um, and I have fully recovered. And I want other people to know that they and their children and their teenagers can fully recover too. So that's where I am now. We'll be right back. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and it does exist and it is a thing, but your book is about how we need to take another look at that because it's used to diagnose patients. And, you know, there's psychiatry and there's psychology, right? So I see a talk therapist. They do not prescribe medication. I do have a psychiatrist who prescribes medication. So mostly it is the psychiatrist who prescribe medication that use the DSM. My talk therapist uses it to uh, get a reimbursement on my health insurance, you know, if if she doesn't indicate what we're talking about, it's not considered something that my health insurance would reimburse me for. So it's really about a bunch of coding, right? So that payments can be handled. I mean, it's almost this kind of, it's like the least health care, it's like the least mental health care thing, right? It's not um, ooey gooey and some kind of like loving warm blanket of a book. It's just codes and things. And so in your book, you're talking about how it's not fully accurate and it's just kind of made up, but that can be challenging, I'm sure, for people to hear who say, no, but I have this. And it's like, we're not saying you don't have a thing, but can you tell us just, you know, we'll get into it deeper and deeper, but like overview, what is it? What is the DSM? What's it supposed to be for? And what is it really at, you know, the underbelly of it? You know, you asked, this is, this was all incredibly threatening to me. So it was a yeah. relief in some ways, but I would, if you had taken away some of my diagnoses, I would have wrestled you to the ground. I mean, I was so identified yeah. with them and I thought that they helped. I've since read, you know, and looked at studies and they've actually found that people who believe there's a biological cause to their diagnoses have more stigma, more self-stigma, more shame and are more hopeless Mm. about their diagnoses. So that's kind of interesting just to keep in mind. But not everybody is, and I respect that. I mean, there are some communities that are really um, emboldened by their diagnoses that really come together. The autism community is a great example. And that's a diagnosis that to me is like, you know, I mean, there's complications with the Asperger's and all of that, but we won't go into that. But 
the the and I what I, I really do want to explain to all your listeners and thank you again for having me on. This is such a great opportunity that all I want is not to take away anyone's diagnosis because that felt right for me not to identify with one, though I still very much identify with having a mental illness. I still take meds. I still mm-hmm. see a psychiatrist. I will always take meds because I'm pretty sure my body's dependent on them. And I have no shame about that. There's no, mm. I don't need to be psychopharmacologically pure to be well. Um, mm. That's just how, you know, it's complicated. We're kind of in a sticky thing. So for me, I think everyone has to make their own decision. Do they want to keep their diagnosis? Do they want to identify with it completely? Do they want to take it with a grain of salt, use it for what it's worth? And I'll explain why. So the, um, the reason is that, you know, we really have this luxury right now because the DSM has in some ways, as I said, it's a book. That's all it is. When someone said to me, you have bipolar disorder, I imagined, you know, microscopes and people in lab coats making tests and deciding who has bipolar disorder. But the problem with DSM diagnoses is that there is no biological marker for any of them. What that means is there's no test. So we often like to say mental illness is the same as physical illness. And that comes from a really good place, which is we need to respect it the same. We need to honor it the same. We need to have mental health days if we need them. Absolutely. But they aren't the same with the exception of dementia and rare chromosomal disorders that are in the DSM, no single diagnosis can, has an objective reality. They are dependent mm. completely on self-reported symptoms, totally subjective, and a clinician's opinion, totally subjective. Right. And that's the, that's the issue with the DSM. It started in 1952 that doctors came together. Um, at, well, I should say, members of the American Psychiatric Association came together to create a manual that doctors could use to better communicate with each other. And what's kind of fascinating, you talked about therapy and psychology versus psychiatry. So one's medical. The DSM became a way in the third edition, it's had seven editions where it gets revised and more diagnoses are included never are they taken out, but more and they're Mm. refined and the wording is changed. The third edition was really the turning point. And that was when a guy named Robert Spitzer, who again, was very well intended. I'm totally pro-psychiatry, by the way. So so everybody knows. Um, And so he was a psychiatrist and was just bent on making psychiatry a respected medical field. And it wasn't because they didn't have the proof again. And so he's the one who came up with the symptom lists. So when you get depression, Mm. you have to have five of nine of these symptoms. Now, when I got the major depressive disorder, uh, you know, diagnosis, I thought, okay, well, this is scientific. Like, this is medical, you know, of course. Mm-hmm. And then in my research, as I went through, um, it was, it's completely arbitrary. So Robert Spitzer is quoted, it's a, it's a fascinating and penetrating and frightening quote, but he was asked why you have to have five of nine symptoms to receive a major depression diagnosis. And he said, well, we were sitting around the table and we went around and we said, how many do you think we should have? And six just seemed like too many and four too few. They were completely arbitrary. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And we still have the five. Um, Now, again, you know, the, the, the DSM is useful. We use it. So you mentioned to get, you know, so therapists can be reimbursed. We use those diagnostic codes. 
and we use um, we use it for legal matters. We use it for um, when we're trying to, when people need educational services. You need it to file for disability. I don't want to throw it out the window. I mean, I, I don't think it's totally yeah. useless. What I'm really hoping for is full transparency. I just want everyone mm-hmm. to know what they're really getting, and then we can make more informed decisions about our mental health and decide. Because I think there were times, like you said, there were times in my life where, for me, the diagnoses tended to become self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, yeah. And so I, I see where they were very unhelpful, but they were also helpful. Ultimately, I did get well. And I couldn't yeah. have done that without the doctors I saw. Um, but just going to another point about the DSM, psychiatrists aren't the only ones who use it. And this is what's really different mm-hmm. and kind of fascinating too, in that 80% of antidepressant um, prescriptions are coming from primary care physicians. Five of my six diagnoses. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't love reading that because I think I that's... Five of my six Not, came from primary care physicians. And yeah. what's what's really needs to be noted about that is they came from men in white coats in hospitals. <laughs> so wearing stethoscopes. Right. I mean, I had every reason to believe that it was as valid as a cancer diagnosis. Um, but again, this, this yeah. sort of, you know, the, and then the other thing about it is we use the terminology. So this one theorist has called it um, the psychiatrization of language and of culture. Like the DSM is a really powerful work of culture. We diagnose each other. Teenagers are diagnosing themselves on social media. We're really, we use it even more perhaps than (laughs) physicians. I mean, it's just such a huge part of our world that I just want everyone to know what these things really are. In describing things, I always get, okay, I really want to be sure that this isn't coming off as like, you know, secretly a cult, like an- like Scientology, like anti-psychiatry and like the DSM is all bullshit. It's like, no, no, no. We're just literally telling you they're kind of guessing at stuff. And if a diagnosis doesn't feel right to you or you don't want to identify by it, just know the truth behind it, which is it's not chronic. And I, all this to say that when I first I went to therapy for depression. And and I believe at that time, all the undiagnosed, uh, all the the moods and behaviors I had from childhood to teenagehood with undiagnosed panic disorder and anxiety put me into a depression because I was so confused and so lonely about it. And then I just, you know, had feelings like a person. And I do believe there was depression. I do believe my chemicals in my brain were altered because of the way I was behaving and thinking for years. And in order to start exploring that was so overwhelming that I'm glad I had talk therapy and my first Prozac prescription. But I'm saying all that to say, when I first went to get diagnosed and and I went to a psychiatrist who prescribes, my talk therapist has said, you probably have a chemical imbalance. And I remember thinking, oh my God, like, that's a big, that is like someone saying you have cancer, right? Or not even cancer because cancer can go away with chemo. Like, but someone saying you have an enlarged heart or, you know, you're, one of your kidneys is failing. You need it removed. You're going to have one kidney. I mean, it was like a chemical imbalance. That, that sounds very final. And so then when I went to the psychiatrist, I honestly thought, 
I think I went on a lunch hour at my day job when I was just 21. And I, I remember saying to my boss, I don't know if I'll be back today because I, I have this appointment. I don't know how long it's going to be. I thought I had to go through all this testing. I thought I'd be hooked up to monitors, my brain and taking my blood. And were they going to have to shave part of my head to get in there? I mean, why would I not think that, you know? And when it, 15 minutes later, I'm out of the office with a prescription and I was told I had a chemical imbalance. How? How did they know? And I'm st- and I went, okay, I guess I must be so obviously depressed that they can see through my eyes that I, ha- I mean, I, I didn't go, that's weird. Why did, how did they know it's one? And the chemical imbalance theory, which is now the chemical imbalance myth, has been disproven. It's been debunked. And so there are some things to keep in mind. And I know this gets so confusing, which is why this is great to talk about. And I knew none of this, by the way, (laughs) none of it. I mean, one reason I went along with so much for 30 years was that I believed in the chemical imbalance theory. The media reported it. Celebrities talked about it. My therapist told me that was true. My doctors mentioned it. I mean, why wouldn't we believe it? They used to say, you know, that it was, uh, you know, a so you had two low levels of something, right? So dopamine, serotonin, as you said. Yeah. And they found no consistency among people with depression or schizophrenia with any of the neurotransmitters or any of that. So the chemical imbalance theory has been debunked. Mm. Now, does that mean that it isn't something going on in your brain? Probably not. We don't know. And so what has happened, Thomas Insel, I just interviewed him. So that's why I keep referring to him. I had that honor. So I'm like starstruck. Some people, it's the Kardashians for me. It's like the the former head (laughs) of the NIMH. But um, his new book is really great. And he's, he's thinking of it as a researcher. And researchers are now trying to think of it more as a circuit board, like a computer circuit board. That's the metaphor they're using now. And so, but none of that has been proven either. And so- What I think that does for us, where that leaves us is we don't know. And when my psychiatrist said to me, I don't know, it was just, then it was my choice. I wasn't forced to believe something that wasn't true. What bothered me was the, I don't want to call it lying because I don't know if those people didn't know the truth. They didn't do their research. They weren't up to date or if they were actually wanted to believe it. I don't know. But, um, Certainly, there are a lot of people still talking about the chemical imbalance myth and using that to really get people to take their mental health seriously. And what I love about your show that you do is you just investigate. You just Mm -hmm. ask questions and try to get at anxiety as a disorder versus anxiety as an emotion. And I didn't, I couldn't have told you I couldn't have identified any of my emotions for like 30 years. I didn't know. I mean, I could have hit happy and I probably could have hit sad. But other than that, I mean, I did not. And I went into, I was in a partial hospitalization program and we were in a group therapy session and we got a a motion wheel with all the colors, you know, it's got a hundred emotions around it. I was stunned. I was like, there are a hundred of these. I mean, how could you possibly know any of these? So going back to what you were saying, I think it's really important. I I would have been very well served. And I did do cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. As I said, I meditated. But it would have been very helpful for me to learn about emotions. Like, what are they? What do they feel like? 
how do I process that? We'll continue the interview on the flip side of a quick message from our sponsors. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, 
further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. To, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Where my anxiety began was really a phobia of flying, and then it became a phobia of heights, and then kind of just fear of fear of panicking and all that. But I didn't have the luxury of having too many emotions when I was going through all of that. So I didn't really learn how to emotionally regulate. So as I got older and the the phobias went away, I, I wasn't very regulated emotionally. And sometimes getting a diagnosis of ADHD, oh, well, I'm not hyperactive and I, I, I can pay attention. Oh, well, no, it's different in women. It's more about emotional regulation. And then it leads me to read about that and then I think, yeah, I, just, I do identify with this. Okay, great. What can I do about it? And then I do something about it. With each thing I've conquered, I get to say, well, I don't really have that thing anymore. Or, mm-hmm. you know, and then because it's just the kind of person I am, I'm just kind of always seeking joy. And so nothing gets in my way of that. And if I want to take a day and lay in bed all day because I just, I don't know what's going on, but I can't, I just can't whatever, insert whatever. I'm like, I can't today. I will do that. But I have, especially since starting this podcast, been less, I I define things so that people quickly understand what I'm saying. I have tendency towards ADHD. You know, I have tendency towards anxiety or panic. But in general, it's all just becoming one big soup now, which is sometimes I'm having certain emotions and sometimes I have reactions about how I feel about those emotions. They may not be reactions anyone can see, but they may just really affect me that day. So I'm looking back and going, I don't even think I ever had depression. I just really don't, you know. (laughs) Um, I think I was just underwater for a while trying to figure things out and it was very overwhelmed. And, uh, but it's just been, it's been fun to take a ride and, and just sort of be, I have the luxury of being able to look at things differently and, you know, and so that's what I liked about your book is that it's really just about you finding yourself amidst all these diagnoses that you received. And my my favorite part of your book, and I'm going to have to now read this person's book because I'd never heard of him, but um, I'm just reading from a quote that I wrote down, Randolph Ness's Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry, um, that anxiety was necessary, you know, dating back to our primitive selves, but we don't live in a state of threat all the time. And so those thoughts are natural, but they're no longer useful, but they're not a sign of a disorder or a disease. A hundred percent. And, and, you know, I think what we need to get to, so if we look at the DSM and how, like you mentioned ADHD, well, first of all, I just wanted to say, listening to you and, and my own experience, being given so many different diagnoses, there's something wrong with the diagnostic tool that we're using. It shouldn't be that mm-hmm. easy to slap. I don't go to the, do- you know, I don't go to my yearly, an- my annual exam physical and get like cancer and then be told, no, you got tuberculosis. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just doesn't. <laughs> right. You know, there's something wrong with the, the diagnostic tool that we're using. And part of it is, that is, again, why it's not valid. The DSM, DSM diagnoses, they overlap. 
So the diagnoses are not what's called discrete disease entities, fancy word for just saying that they don't exist by themselves. So you can see ADHD in this person and you can see, you know, anxiety in the same person. In one study, 60% of, um, or it was half of the people who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia were reassessed and given diagnoses of anxiety and mood disorders. Those are incredibly uh, different diagnoses. <laughs> they should not be that easy yeah. to reassess and just be doing that. And, and so the problem is that these are really invented symptom lists and they're doing the best that they can. And I am getting mm -hmm. to the evolutionary psychiatry. But um, the, the other problem is with that, we have an imperfect tool. So you have clinicians and mental health professionals trying to diagnose, but the reliability of these diagnoses is also very, very low. So like generalized anxiety disorder has a reliability score of 0.2 on a sc uh, scale of zero to one. Like that's really bad. Mm. <laughs> so that's like 20%, keep, right? <laughs> like uh, you've got a 20% chance of actually yeah. having it. But all yeah. this is to say, that doesn't mean anxiety isn't real. Again, it's just that the labels that they're using don't hold up. Um, yeah. And so there's the validity factor and then the reliability factor. And so where that left me was, okay, how am I going to think about my emotional life? How am I going to think about my mental and emotional life? And then I read Ness's book and my father and I read it together. And um, my dad is 80 and he's just very funny. Now he's like, he, he, being in a book club with him is takes like two sentences, you know, like that's how long <laughs> we talk about the book, but it stayed with yeah. me for a long time. And what I loved about what he was saying is, my brain wasn't some dark, mysterious land of Freud where everything was beyond my ability to understand it. And I had to go to a therapist to understand myself and they knew me better than I knew myself. And, but yes. it also wasn't some horrible, like chemical craziness where things were going off and misfiring and I couldn't control it. It was just that I have this really powerful, primitive part of my brain I have crippling anxiety still and I feel it. And I think, first of all, I think those of us with anxiety really badly, we are the people you wanted on your team in the, in on the belt. Like we were the people yep. who were seeing lions everywhere. <laughs> we're just like, lion, lion Right. We're lion. looking ahead. We're like, even if it's not there, what if it were, let's, let's <laughs> role play what to do. <laughs> exactly. Like I am, I am fully the person you wanted in your primitive clan. I just was. And so I kind of take solace in that. And I just realized, mm -hmm. okay, we're answering email. It's okay. <laughs> we're not on the belt. There isn't a lion. And I also love his, his description. I didn't understand. Anxiety made a lot of sense in the evolutionary model, but depression was like, well, what's the advantage of that? Because remember, evolution is designed to keep you alive, not to make you happy. It's not what's best for Correct. man. It's just to keep us going. So that's yeah. why we're not happy 100% of the time. We're not designed to find happiness. We're designed to survive. The human condition is not happiness. It's, yeah. it's, just, be, it's just being here. Yeah, that's it, interesting. And it's so, survival. So, yeah. And depression, he says that there's some belief that, that depression is actually just the body's way of resetting from being high, high, high on, you know, ratcheted up on anxiety. And that made a lot of sense to me, having been diagnosed with manic depression or what's called bipolar, um, mm -hmm. that, you know, I had very, you know, I had high highs and low lows and that when someone said, oh, that could have been a cycle that was just natural or part of the way we function, that 
is interesting to me because I didn't want to see everything as being the result of my diagnosis anymore. I really think at one point my body was like, please, we, I, I don't know how to stop you from panicking because um, you're not doing anything about it. So I think I'm just going to depress you physically, you know, and I just couldn't get out of bed. And once I handled my anxiety and like got tools, the depression didn't come back. And I've always said, I really think it was like a respite. My body just saying time to sleep now because you've just been so jacked up. And I, I think also when you look at it that way in terms of serious mental illness, so there's any mental illness and then there's serious mental illness and an AMI versus an SMI. So SMIs are basically defined as they're not any disorder, but it's essentially bipolar, schizophrenia, major depression with suicidality, sometimes mm-hmm. severe PTSD, but anything that really um, you are at the point where you cannot function or live independently. And so I couldn't live independently for five years. I was living with my yeah. mother and I was very lucky to have that resource because that's why people are on the street and in jail because they don't have a resource like that where they can go. And any mental illness is the rest of it. And it's not that that's any less important, but it is a very, those are very different. But when you think of someone in crisis, so someone with a serious mental illness, you think about your brain as being programmed to just look for danger. That's just going to, it's just going to keep going and keep piling on itself and, and creating more and more of that and entrenching the person. And so it's, it doesn't surprise me that I, got worse and worse and worse and really just eventually couldn't come out of it. But I did. Well, I really did love that story you told about um, autism and then Asperger's being entered into the DSM and then taken away. And the community, the Aspies were like, excuse me, you know, and I actually do know people with autism and with Asperger's. To me, it's two totally different things. I can, I can tell. I mean, I really... I was shocked to see that. And, and the reasons for it were kind of ridiculous. Can you, can you tell us about that? I feel like that really illustrates this DSM. Yeah. I mean, part of my experience uh, and what I talk about in the book and just my life is that while I was going through all this, I also was encountering and um, I've always been you know, taught. And so I was a writer in residence in the New York City public schools. And I ended up being assigned often to special education classrooms. And then suddenly I was the autism go-to person. <laughs> and so I was always going into classrooms with students with severe autism. And I mean, severe autism. So these are classes with about maybe six to eight children. Many of them have a private nurse that, you know, not private in that they're wealthy. These were in very, very um, marginalized communities in the South Bronx and the South Brooklyn. And so I really got to know what that, what that type of autism is. And as you're saying, Asperger's is a totally different thing. So when we had the two diagnoses of autism and Asperger's, what they found was that a lot of the resources that were, were going to people with Asperger's, which this isn't a very thorough definition of it, but Asperger's is slightly more high functioning than autism. Mm-hmm. And I should define what autism is. So autism literally means interiority, like aloneness. And when there's a kind of cutoff from not necessarily reality in the sense of hallucinating, but there's a kind of separation with the world. And so autism mm-hmm. was in the DSM, it, it was defined by mutism. So it was people who were nonverbal. Mm. 
And then the diagnosis, just what they call loosened. And so suddenly mutism was dropped from it. And then all that allowed for all these other people to receive a diagnosis of autism. And the way they tried to sort of counter that or work with that was to create Asperger's, which was a higher functioning, if you want to call it version of it. Although again, that's, you know, not a great way of describing it because it's more complicated Mm -hmm. than that. But so when they found that the resources were going to the higher functioning students, often it was educational services, uh, they decided to they created the autism spectrum. Now that was also created. So Asperger's was dropped completely from the DSM. That was also part of the DSM is moving toward this idea of a spectrum. So instead of having all these different like generalized anxiety disorder and social anxiety disorder, they're trying to go toward a spectrum of diagnosis that has Mm -hmm. its own problems. But so that's what happened. But a lot of, you know, the people Asperger's, people with Asperger's did find that they suddenly did not have a diagnosis. And that was, they really, there was an uproar about it. That's pretty rare though, that a DSM diagnosis is dropped more often than not. I mean, when we started the DSM at 128 diagnoses, we now have 541. If you count subtypes and um, every kind of avenue to get a diagnosis. And so you'd be hard pressed to go into any clinician's or mental health professional's office and talk about your fears or your deepest even desires and not get a diagnosis at this point. Um, So it's just, and again, it's this idea of, like you talked about ADHD. Well, what they did was they dropped the H from ADHD. And you'll notice sometimes it's called ADD and sometimes it's called ADHD. But what they did is they dropped hyperactivity as a criteria. So you could be inattentive type. And that created what was called a false epidemic of ADHD. Then they also included adult mm. ADHD, which had never existed before. So they just created it. It was not a real thing. So basically, you have, you, all you had was ADHD and you had to be hyperactive. Suddenly, they dropped the H and you can be hyperactive, but you don't have to be. That doesn't quite make sense, but you can just be no. inattentive. And then right. you suddenly have, and before you had to be, you know, you had to be in childhood. It was a childhood, you know, childhood disorder. And then suddenly adults can get it too. So that's the kind of thing that happens in the revisions of the DSM and why it's so heavily criticized, but also why it's so problematic for all of us. I mean, we're all in this together. I don't think mm-hmm. any psychiatrist, well, There's hubris and that kind of, you know, arrogance certainly out there, but I don't think any psychiatrist is around walking, walking around. Well, there is one I know that is doing this, but (laughs) walking around like, you know, we're doing a great job. This is great. I mean, what's someone asked me if I gotten a lot of pushback from psychiatry and I've gotten none. I have gotten actually, everyone has said, yeah, we know. And thank you. Like that's, that's all I've received. And it feels great. I mean, it's wonderful because it gives me a lot of hope. Anxiety Bites will be right back after a quick little message from one of our sponsors. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hold up. 
Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up... (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. You said, you know, according to the DSM, if grief lasted more than two months, in quotes called uncomplicated bereavement, it became a major depressive disorder 
despite no changes to the grief symptoms. So suddenly it's like now just because it's been two months, you have major depressive disorder, but you don't have any new symptoms. And and then you said the bereavement really only seemed to count the loss of a human death. I mean, it wasn't your house burned down, you lost your job, you had a breakup, not even a pet dying. And so that's where I've heard uh, a mythology. I've heard it from psychiatrists that, oh yeah, so if you're going through a grieving of any kind, if it lasts more than six weeks, you have tipped over into depressive disorder. Now you have depression. Yeah. Looking back, it doesn't make sense because first of all, our culture isn't set up to have any time for grieving. So if we had 24-7 to grieve and, and it did last longer than six weeks, uh, maybe, I don't know. But it, it just seemed so arbitrary. Well, who does that help, though? Like, who is right. this helping? Well, the grief disorder, it's now called yeah. prolonged grief disorder. They have a new, the newest revision of the DSM came out this month. I'm not sure if they've released it yet, but it's out in March. And the, um, so they've now created prolonged grief disorder. So basically, people have been working for many, many years, for decades, to try to get the bereavement exclusion removed because they want everyone to be able to get a depression diagnosis. Now, to take out the criminal, like evil element, why do they mm -hmm. want that? I believe the people doing this, first of all, the DSM has been designed to diagnose as many people as possible. That's what it's designed for. That's what they want because they believe they're doing a service. The problem is yeah. we're overdiagnosing and, and they're, they're not always doing a service. Now, does that mean someone doesn't need therapy? No, but do they need a diagnosis? That's, that's where we get into it. Mm. So the bereavement exclusion uh, was dropped and now they've created, so anyone can receive major depressive disorder diagnosis, regardless of what losses they're experiencing. And, and again, mm. like you said, we're, we're totally disregarding, the problem with the DSM is it disregards context. So if my house right. is burned down and I am grieving, <laughs> I, I have depression. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, or if I lose my job or whatever it might be, but they've created prolonged grief disorder. And that says that if you grieve longer than one year, you have a mental illness. Um, and that, and what's, what's really too bad about this is that in their press releases, the American Psychiatric Association, which if you want to talk about benefiting, they make hundreds of millions of dollars off the DSM. It is in their best interest mm. for it to be a cultural, you know, kind of presence among us and for us to use these diagnoses. And what they've mm. done in their press releases is they talk, they really have capitalized on um, everything. So meaning the pandemic, talking about how many people have lost loved ones. They also talk yeah. about natural disasters. They talk about, you know, um, so they're really kind of what's called, and this is where it does get sinister, but marketing the, the disorder is what it's called. And it's something that drug companies have done for a long time. And so, and this is, anxiety is really interesting in this respect. Anxiety has been a kind of, I don't know, victim of this, I almost want to say, because it's obviously not anxiety's mm -hmm. fault. But when, so a drug company creates uh, GlaxoSmithKline, the drug company creates Paxil, the antidepressant, right. an SSRI. And they did it, they actually came up with it in 1993. So it was after the Prozac had made a splash and they just, Prozac stole its thunder. So basically what they had yeah. to do was find something else to say that Paxil could fix. And so mm. what they did is they went through the pages of the DSM and they found an obscure diagnosis called generalized anxiety disorder. 
one percent of wow, the population the thing that was I'm, obscure. Yeah, one wow. percent of the population had it. It was like not, you know, no one really, you know, it, it was basically insignificant. And what they yeah. did, and this is actually brilliant, they marketed the diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder, not Paxil. Yeah. And so they hired a PR firm. They also create fake at patient advocacy groups. Um, and they also fund patient ag- advocacy groups. So basically, then the media is reporting on it and they get some sort of prominent doctor from Columbia University or wherever to say, yes, this is a terrible diagnosis and all these people have it, but they don't know it. And then what happens is once they've got the approval, GlaxoSmithKline swoops in and says, hey, Paxil can cure generalized anxiety disorder that now 8 or 15 or 18 percent of the you know, American public has, depending on the statistic you believe. And the same thing happened with social anxiety disorder. Um, yeah. And it was also GlaxoSmithKline. I mean, they're not the only ones. Other yeah. pharmaceutical companies like Upjohn and Pfizer have done the same thing. Pfizer did it with PTSD and Upjohn did it with OCD. So this idea of marketing the diagnosis, again, it, it's a little bit wrong to say that pharma creates diagnoses in the sense of they don't actually stand at the door and pay the people writing the DSM to create a diagnosis. Right. But, and it's not made up. There is anxiety. Right. There is PTSD. Yeah. But they're just uh, saying, it's like they're finding their brand, you know? Well, the DSM is such a weak diagnostic tool that it can be used for all these terrible purposes and in all these ter- in all these sort of really dangerous ways is the problem. Um, and sadly, I don't think it's hopeless, but the new edition of the DSM that's just come out, they had a decade. The last edition came out in 2013. So nearly a decade to fix the problems that were with the DSM. Controversies Mm -hmm. had erupted. A lot of attention was paid to it and they haven't fixed one. And so I really feel like the reason why I wrote the book was it's not going to come, change won't come from psychiatry. It won't come from the APA and it won't come from the DSM. It has to come from us. And that's yeah. why I, I wrote Pathological and why I want everyone, I want us to be empowered. I want us to be able to say, hey, I know about the DSM. And now let's talk about the diagnosis you're giving me and what that means and what treatment I should have. Well, example, this whole notion, like we are having a mental health crisis in this country. And honestly, just on, I can't explain it on a bizarre level in my body. When I hear that, I go, we're not. And I and I see people having to get duct tape on airplanes. I, I see more insanity than I've ever seen in my life. Um, and so it's wild that I'm not running around going, we're having a major mental health moment in this country. It's something, but it's not all these undiagnosed people. And I interviewed this professor about trauma and he said, we're not having a mental health crisis. We're having a chronic stress. And I, there was this even though I agree with him, there was this like, oh, don't say that. Uh, you know, I don't want anyone to get mad because we've all kind of bought into it. And I'm like, well, you know, th-. but I, I, it's like, well, if we understood what chronic stress really did to people, we wouldn't be so offended that we're calling it that instead of mental health crisis. Like chronic stress is not, we're not meant to deal with it and we mm-hmm. don't deal with it well. But it is like, I do not think there's millions of people with undiagnosed this or that. I think... I don't know what it is. Like, what do you think is happening? (laughs) 
Well, it's such an interesting phrase. And I I really do blame the media a lot. So I, I say in my book, I don't blame anyone except the DSM. I blame a book, but I, and I do, but the media, I'm just, I'm a writer. So I think about words and the power of words, especially the written word. And so what's interesting about what you're saying is we do have a mental health crisis in the sense that people with serious mental illness are ending up on the streets and in jails. Yes. Cook County is our largest, Cook County Jail, which is not far from where I live, is the largest mental Mm -hmm. health facility in the country. That's a crisis. That is absolutely a mental health crisis. What's happening otherwise really isn't like you're saying. I mean, what's interesting about the diagnosis of anxiety and how it changed over the editions of the DSM is it used to be in the third edition, you had to have unrealistic and excessive worry. They removed unrealistic, the word unrealistic in the next edition and in the you know subsequent editions and excessive. So all you had to do mm. was worry. I mean, think about mm. what that changes. And when we think about the pandemic, none of what's going on is unrealistic or excessive given what we've just been through. Is it ideal? No. <laughs> do we want it? No. I mean, and I do think that, you know, we don't know what stress is or what the relationship of it is to mental illness, but I mean, there certainly could be points at which stress can drive you to, you know, an extreme of mental illness. We don't know. So that that is possible. But really, I think we're all coping with this very extreme, excessive, somewhat, you know, it is realistic to be terrified that you're going to get, you know, to be terrified of germs and to be, you know, yeah. paranoid of, of gov- the government, given what's going around and, and how, you know, in the silos of social media and that sort of thing. You know, it's not actually, I mean, this is what we're living in and we aren't making things up. How did you get yourself out of the situation where you're, you're living with your mom, you've got all these diagnoses. What did you do? I mean, I was extremely suicidal. Um, I, I really did, you know, at one point, I, I definitely was a lot. My mother was on suicide watch for four years. I mean, it was a lot to ask of her. So I did end up moving out and I got much, much worse before I got better. And my mm. sister, again, my family was just a lifeline for me. So I cannot imagine someone who doesn't have that support system. But I had, you know, a place and I had people to support me and I had a purpose. And so I started writing this book um, and I don't, really look at writing as healing, but it gave me a purpose. And all- <laughs> right. as a writer, I do not either. Yeah. So yeah, it's not healing. But so I, I did have those things. I say in my book that it's not a typical mental health memoir, mainly because I'm questioning a lot of what we take for granted in terms of what mental health diagnoses are, but also because I don't have the answer. And so all I know is that we don't we don't tell people that they can fully recover. We tell them they, the best they can hope for is remission and managing their symptoms. And that is simply wrong. Mm. And my, mm. you know, I have no data to back this up, but if we want to lower the suicide rate, start being honest with people that, not, that mental illness isn't chronic and that there's hope. Mm. Because when I was suicidal, I had no hope. I had no future. And so if someone yeah. had, no one had told me, everyone told me they were chronic. Um, until I saw the, I don't know, psychiatrist, Dr. R, he, he was the only one who was allowed me to think of a future. So that really helped. I suddenly started thinking of a future. Once I stopped identifying with the diagnosis, 
then mm. I stopped attributing all my really low lows and, and anxiety and, you know, everything that I was feeling to a diagnosis. And instead it was just what I had to manage. Um, and then mm. to be honest, I mean, up until Thomas Insel's book came out and he is a man with so much authority and has my total respect when he said mental illness isn't chronic, I, I felt like, oh my God, I can now really say it and I can say it to other people. I feel comfortable, you know, for me to say, I couldn't tell other people, yes, it's not chronic without, you know, anything to back it up. But although there's no proof right. that, that they are chronic, but there's, at the time there was nothing there um, for me to really rely on. So that has helped tremendously. But I don't think we know what healing looks like yet. We don't know what recovery mm -hmm. looks like because we haven't given it a chance and that hasn't been our priority. Our priority has been looking at trying to prove that they're brain diseases, quote unquote, and trying to prove this and prove that. And what we need to start doing is healing and caring for people and getting them full recovery and to know that. And that's pathological, the movement. That's why I started it. Um, my book, you know, gives readers everything they need to know wrapped up in a really good story. But I wanted mm -hmm. also kind of actionable steps because I can't offer an elixir. I can't offer, you know, a magic bullet. And so pathological, the movement is just a public awareness campaign to let people know that mental illness is not chronic and you can fully recover and that DSM diagnoses are not valid and largely unreliable. And all this is, as I said, the exception is dementia and rare chromosomal disorders. But, and what I ask, or not what I ask, but what I hope we can do is ask three questions when we or someone we love receives a diagnosis, which is of the mental health professional or clinician, is this diagnosis valid and or unreliable? Um, the answer to the first one is no, it's not valid. And the answer to the second one is it depends in terms of reliability. Mm -hmm. um, and then is, has this diagnosis been proven to be chronic? And the answer is no. And then what does that mean um, in terms of the treatment that you're suggesting? Now, I, I'm not good about asking my doctors questions. I'm very, medical professionals have great authority over me. So I don't really, mm -hmm. I'm not really assuming people will actually ask these questions, but we'll ask them of ourselves. And we'll think about that. Mm. And, and that we'll walk into physicians' offices and mental health professionals' offices with power. And they will have to kind of rise to the occasion and be more transparent with us. Do you have your to-go box with you? Are you ready for the takeaways? If you want to read the takeaways or look at takeaways from past episodes, you may go to jenkirkman.com and then click where you see that it says Anxiety Bites. I will also put the link directly in the show notes. But here are the takeaways from this episode. The word pathologize means to medicalize a condition, any condition and not just a psychiatric one. All mental health diagnoses come from the manual known as the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Many prominent psychiatrists and researchers have warned about the invalid diagnoses in the DSM, even though mental illness is very real. Mental health diagnoses in the DSM are focused on the biomedical model or the idea that mental health diagnoses are biological and therefore chronic but no DSM mental health diagnosis has proven to be chronic. 
Studies have shown that the people who believe there is a biological cause to their diagnosis have more self-stigma, more shame, and are more hopeless about their diagnosis. The problem with DSM diagnoses is that there is no biological marker for any of them, which means there is no test. Saying that mental illness is the same as physical illness comes from a well-meaning place, meaning that we need to respect it the same. But with the exception of dementia and rare chromosomal disorders that are in the DSM, no single mental health diagnosis has an objective reality like a physical illness. In 1952, members of the American Psychiatric Association came together to create the DSM, which is the manual that doctors could use to better communicate with each other. The DSM has had seven editions where it gets revised and more diagnoses are included. Sarah Fay's goal is not to throw out the DSM, but to have more transparency around this manual so that people can make more informed decisions about their mental health. Sometimes a diagnosis can be helpful, but other times they can lead to self fulfilling prophecies. 80% of antidepressant prescriptions are coming from primary care physicians and not psychiatrists who prescribe medication. The DSM has been designed to diagnose as many people as possible. It's designed to be doing a service, but the problem can be that doctors are now over-diagnosing, which ultimately does people a disservice. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you would like to give it a five-star review, and please do, I would like you to. I don't care what you like. I want you to. Um, Go on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Those are two places that allow you to leave reviews. The more reviews I get, the more people find this podcast. It's a very simple algorithm. So do that for me and send me an email, anxietybitesweekly at gmail.com. Tell me what you love about the show. You can give some anxiety tips that you have, that you use, that you want to share with your fellow listeners. And you can ask me any questions that you want, and I may answer it on an upcoming listener email episode. Thanks again for listening. And remember, anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest 
to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.